remembering on both sides that civility is not a sign of weakness and sincerity is always subject to proof. Let us never negotiate out of fear, but let us never fear to negotiate. You are listening to Speaker Points, an NSD China podcast. Hello, welcome to the NSDA China podcast Speaker Points, where we interview and discuss about speech and debate all around China and the world. Today, I'm interviewing a coach here in China that I've known for quite a while, actually. I think he arrived in China right before I did. His name is Nick Burr. Nick Burr has a long, successful history, not only being a debater but also a debate coach. He's coached in Nanjing, Hangzhou, and coached debaters from other cities as well. I'm sure.、Uh, and we're gonna pick his brain, find out what he thinks about debate happening in China and the new topic. So, welcome, Nick. Hi, everybody. Glad to be here. <laughs> So we're sitting here at the TOC. How many TOCs have you been to? I think this is my third. I remember the first one happened and nobody told me. <laughs> that planning for that was a little rushed, I think. Yeah.、Um, well, they told all of the students. They didn't tell the coaches. <laughs> yeah, coaches. Coaching's a little different in China than it is in the United States, right? Yes, yes, by a lot. What are some of the biggest differences coaching here and coaching back in the United States? Well, for anybody listening, considering coaching in China, one of the big perks of it is that you don't really have the same chaperone responsibilities. So you don't have to herd the kids, and you don't have to organize the hotel room and stuff. Somebody else is going to take care of that, and the kids are pretty well behaved. So you don't have to worry about you know lighting the mattress on fire in the hotel. Not that any of my students ever did anything like that, but you get the idea. That sounds like a good recruiting push. I might use this to、uh, <laughs> recruit some coaches.、Uh, but are there any cons? Well, it's a very different skill set. One of the things in my years and years of China coaching experience is I've seen lots of people who I know to be very talented debate coaches and debate minds show up in China and burn out fairly quickly because they were expecting a different kind of game than the one that we play. One of the things I really value about teaching in China is I feel like I get to focus on the pedagogical side. Of debate coaching, so it's a lot less about finding one specific strategy for one specific team at one specific time, and more getting back to core values of communication and open discussion of ideas, of well-informed debate and argument, and building up the fundamentals of speaking, teamwork,、uh, and all of the other things that we all learned about in high school and forgot about in the competitive rush. Right, and I don't know about you, but when I got having to focus on those core values and things like that, definitely is something that I had either forgotten or didn't realize how much I enjoyed doing. No, knock on the coaches that love to stay up all night cutting one specific piece of evidence to defeat one random specific piece of evidence that the other team may not even have to deal with. But that type of hyper-specific micro-managing coaching for me is not as enjoyable as the more core, fundamental value coaching stuff that you describe. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because when you get to this age, you do a lot of reflecting on your time in speech and debate, 
And one of the things that I remember very clearly from my time as a debater is those little things. The, the coach that goes and makes sure that I get food, that I go to bed on time, builds a sense of community and teamwork. And those are the things that reflecting were very important with me, that stuck with me all of these years that informed my dedication to the activity through today. And of course, at the time, I was a lot more focused on the, um, the graduate assistant that was a year older than me that could give me that one specific piece of evidence. And then seeing, you know, maybe that wasn't as important. Yeah. When we see TOC nationals, there's a lot of speeches that are given, opening ceremony during the breaks. And when we have a student giving a speech, I've seen dozens of them, if not hundreds. I don't think I've ever seen a student as a part of their thank you to a coach mention anything to do with a piece of evidence or this prep they did before a class. It's usually all anecdotal stuff about life lessons, about intangible pieces of suggestions, but also those core fundamental values that those coaches instilled in them. They usually it's not the minutia that uh, you stay up late at night. Yeah. Well, and the way I see it is those are the stories that debaters should be telling each other about each other. Mm. My role as a coach should be to create an environment where students feel free to discuss those things or excited about diving into the evidence, about discussing the arguments, and I can answer their questions. But the sign of a strong debater, I think, is independence in the selection of their arguments. The ability to go out and be confident enough to say, I think this research tangent is something that I'm interested in. And yeah, I can say, I think that's a good idea, or maybe you should think about this, or maybe you can look at this thing as a coach. Um, but the genesis of the idea should come from the debaters. And the best debaters are always the ones that create their arguments for themselves. I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think the best, you described the best debaters, but I also think the best debate coaches are the ones who recognize that independence in their students is a part of the value of debate. I think every coach, when they start coaching, some are worse than others, but everyone has a degree of wanting to relive their debate glory, wishing they were up there back on the stage, having another argument, right? Yeah. And I think the best coaches are the ones that, as quickly as possible, learn to put that aside and realize this is not about my glory, this is about their glory. And if you look at any other subject, you wouldn't say a math teacher is doing their job well if they took the test for their students and got 100 for all of them, right? And I think some coaches don't think about it that way and forget that if you're doing all the debating for the kids, they're not actually learning the material, right? Yeah, well, and I have seen a lot of very frustrated kids that are dealing with a frustrated coach who you know, hands them an argument and they don't get it. And then they feel, I don't get this, I don't like this, or I must be a bad debater because the coach gave me something and it's not working out for me. And one of the things that I always really valued about debate was the opportunity to find my own vice and to pursue my own interest and develop ideas by myself. That freedom and that independence was what was really truly life-changing about my experience with speech and debate. So much so that towards the end of it, 
well, there was a long stretch in the middle of it where I was pretty happy to make very bad arguments because they were my bad arguments, not somebody else's. So you find a balance, but that's kind of how I see that. Yeah, you got to have some agency in the arguments you choose or the activity ceases to be fun. So, I mean, you might have fun a few tournaments winning with someone else's strategy, someone else's ideas and stuff like that. But the thrill of getting the trophy will fade eventually if you are not the one in control of your own destiny. Yeah. One of the things I really believe in that direction is that teaching debate and learning debate is about a process, not a product, which I'm sure lots of people have heard that approach before. But you can focus on the next tournament and say it's make or break. If I don't get first place here, then I must be a bad debater. And it breaks my heart when I see students approach debate with that mentality and then get second place at the tournament and figure that must not be very good, so I, I gotta quit. The best debaters I've coached in China and elsewhere are not the ones who started out immediately successful. They go through tournament after tournament of not breaking, maybe for an entire year. But it's because they learned those foundations and they figured out how to do it for themselves and they learned the thinking skills and they learn, frankly, the life skills that have to do with discipline and learning from your losses and improvement over time. And they're the ones who get the most out of debate and end up on the big stage at the very end of the career. Yep, absolutely. Let's turn back time to quote Cher. Big fan of the show, by the way. Cher listens to every episode. How did your debate career start? How old were you? Where was it? Oh God. Tell us about Baby Nick. I can honestly say that I had never heard of debate until a friend of mine who I barely remember when I was in, I think, the eighth grade told me that once you get to high school, you can get a special stamp on your graduation certificate if you join the NSDA. And I said, well, that sounds like a good idea. So I showed up to a couple of meetings the summer before I went to high school and sort of like discovered this really strange world where people talked in code and seemed to know what they were talking about, but I was just really confused all of the time. But they seemed really cool. And there were a few other people who were going through it with me and I didn't have a lot of friends at the time. And so my fellow debaters at that time seemed pretty cool. Um, and then I walked into day one of high school with a friend group and a thing to do. Then eventually, actually a week later, I went to my very first debate tournament. was scared out of my mind and I had no idea what was going on. You know, somehow managed to take the leap, got in there, and then just had that experience, that click where you know, the adrenaline kicks in and by the time the tournament is done and you're walking away, you're like, that was the coolest thing that has ever occurred to me. It all makes sense now. I never want to stop doing this. Mm -hmm. So I guess I never stopped. Yeah, I would say that's true. So what type of debate did you do while you were in high school? Policy. Mm. Here's how old I am. When I was in high school, there was no such thing as public forum. That's pretty old. Although I feel like we're about the same age, right? Yeah, yeah. My senior year was the first time in Oklahoma they had done a public forum debate tournament. I remember it coming out as Ted Turner debate. Right. And yeah. I remember everybody was laughing about it. Yeah, that was a pretty funny name. Although, I mean, he who laughs last laughs <laughs> loudest, right? Because the LD community, which is what I did in high school, and of course the policy community, all viewed Ted Turner debate as a joke and ridiculous and this isn't gonna last and it's stupid and now when you go to a tournament in the United States there are some regions of the US where policy doesn't exist anymore and they've got 
200 teams for their public forum tournament. Yeah, and policy people, people who have training with policy background, are infamous for being elitist, and LDRs as well, I'm sure. And probably all forms of debate just believe that their form is naturally superior and everybody else is making the wrong decision. And I was actually cured of this by students when I was coaching in the United States. I was running a large program in Texas, Westwood High School, and it was the first time I had been asked to coach public forum before. And I realized I had a bunch of prejudices. Then I interacted with the public forum debaters. I saw how hard they worked and was really, really impressed. And I started to understand the value of the activity based on the work that the students were showing me. That kind of changed my mind. Um, in terms of what I was willing to do and what I wanted to do as a coach, as an educator, as somebody who believes in speech and debate. I like that story because I feel like I went through a similar transformation. Now, I was not completely brainwashed. I did Lincoln Douglas four years in high school and I did policy for a couple years in college. But my interest in debate in college was waning just enough that no one cared that I strayed from the fray, right? If I wasn't a part of the cult, no one got too upset about it because, ah, oh, Kale just comes to tournaments every once in a while, that's okay. And my debate coach in college, his name was Jackie Massey, he did a great job of really making anyone feel welcome on the debate team. For example, Blake Johnson, who won CETA, he was uh, elder like me, had never touched policy in high school. And I think that happens more now in the college policy world. But back then, the idea of a kid who never touched policy debate in high school winning the CETA Nationals in college was pretty unheard of. Usually it was eight-year debaters, seven-year debaters, right? I think that opened up to a lot of people what Jackie kind of already knew, and that is there is tons of crossover of skills and talent of these debate formats. Yes, they have different speech times. Yes, they have different conventions and styles, but really those core fundamental debate values and lessons and skills that you were talking about earlier can be applied to any debate format. Yeah, once you have the skills down, then changing the mechanics of what you do is simple. Mm -hmm. So I went to work in Florida after that and go to grad school. The high school I worked for as assistant coach was a public forum powerhouse, like national champions, that sort of thing. And like you, those kids worked just as hard as any of the policy kids I had ever interacted with before. And actually, to bring that full circle, if I had any prejudice, it was probably against IEs. Right? I went to, in high school, I was on a speech and debate high school where the speech and the debate were separate. Different coach, different classroom, different classes, different buses to the tournament. And we definitely weren't the worst version of that. We didn't hate each other, but you know, we had our own friend groups within there and we didn't really interact that much. So then whenever I moved on as a coach and I went to a high school that had not a really established IE program, but a bunch of kids that were more interested in doing IEs than doing debate, I was forced to be their coach. And I realized things like original oratory, extemporaneous speaking, these types of events, those kids work super hard too. And there's a really tough skill set that they have to learn and master to be at the highest level. I had an oratory student here a couple years back 
who said something that's going to stick with me forever. She had started her training as a debater and was very good, decided it wasn't for her, and she took a lot of criticism for that, and she felt pretty mad about it because the idea was that she couldn't handle it. She wasn't good enough to be a debater. That's not true at all. The reason she said that she quit debate was because she was tired about arguing what other people told her to argue about. She had such strong opinions that she wanted to share those things, talk about the things that she was passionate about, which if you think about speech and debate education as helping students to find their voice, for a lot of students, oratory is exactly how they do that. Yeah, I like that story, and it's really interesting, that sort of decision. It's interesting that the desire that you talk about of wanting to be able to talk about what I want to talk about is exactly the issue that college policy debate has been struggling with for the past 20 years or so of teams coming in and saying we're not going to run enough topical affirmative we should be allowed to discuss what we want to topics racist because it doesn't let us talk about our dealings with racism or a topic is sexist or gender or gender discriminatory because it doesn't focus on the important issues for us right I don't want to take a stand because, like I said, a lot of people feel very strongly um, either way on that. But I wonder if IEs weren't more well-established and respected in the college circuit, if that desire might have manifested itself in a different way for the college policy community. That's a really interesting take. (laughs) I remember sort of the dismissive version of that argument being, yeah, the IEs are down the hall (laughs) as a framework argument. Yeah. And the big heavy disclaimer here is that I have not been keeping up with the college debate world Me since neither, really. 2012. Yeah, yeah, that's about right. But from my experience as a debater, and I think the much older version of this is people only want to talk about generics or they only rely on their back files or one of the things that that style of debate, the very intense policy approach to debate tends to emphasize is rather esoteric bodies of knowledge or bodies of knowledge that seemed esoteric at the time that just open up a whole new world of imagination and learning in debaters and it becomes the most important thing in the world to them and that's the only thing that they want to talk about and so my day that was like making everything about the security critique Mm -hmm. but the focus on identity race gender i think has a lot to do with the student body's desire to engage with those bodies of literature, those ideas, Mm. and then sort of frustration at the idea that their desires are not being taken seriously. Mm. (laughs) I think there's also sort of a, like, it's fun to rage against the machine. Yeah. It's such a sensitive topic, it's hard to talk about. I want to play devil's advocate or be (laughs) strong side because anyone who knows me and or anyone who heard me say that I come from OU and Jackie Massey knows that I come from a very left critique style of debate and I you know when I was in college I gave back the land I did it as much as possible I ran Taoism I loved it I like running critical AFs but people then are when they hear that background or hear that are then surprised whenever they hear me say but I want it to be topical Like, I wanted to talk about Taoism, I wanted to talk about giving back the land, about indigenous rights and stuff, but never once did I think that I shouldn't be linking to the topic. That's a rule of the game, right? I very much am still like a game mentality of what debate is, and I never wanted to just completely throw out the idea that we should be following the rules of the game. 
Yeah, yeah. I have some degree of sympathy with that position. And I don't really know where the battle lines are drawn these days. Thanks for saying. I should make the disclaimer that I am talking out of my ass a little bit because I haven't been engaged with where the community is now. Like you, probably 2012 was the last time I was really engaged. Uh, maybe even a little earlier, but I do see rumblings on forums or things pop up on my Facebook feed or something. So it's very anecdotal, my knowledge of yeah. what's going on. Yeah, my sense there is that what gets to me, it comes through the filter of social media from people who are still in the community. And if they bother to post about it on social media, it's probably because they're venting, mm. not because like this is what they're thinking about all day, every day. So. Yeah, we get to see like the crazy town version, not the, the in the trenches version. I think more people should be more measured when they read social media. I yeah. have a hard time doing that, to yeah. be honest with you. I, that's a, I think you make a good point that I should try to remind myself as much as possible. I'd get less mad reading Reddit if I did that. So you did policy in high school and in college. Yep. And you coached public forum to high school level students, right? Yeah, yeah. I guess I should kind of fill in the blanks there. After my stint as a debater finally wrapped up my senior year of college, I spent a couple of years coaching at the collegiate level, was putting as much time as I possibly could into it, partially because I had this like burning love of debate that was as hot as ever, and I had to be a part of it, and I wanted to be a part of it, and partially because I was absolutely terrified because I had no idea what else to do with my life. I think that's a similar feeling lots of recent graduates and that word debaters yeah. find themselves in. That's the, the early 20s for you. <laughs> and then what I kind of realized as I was learning how to be an adult and I was realizing that I had to make decisions for myself and to decide, going back to what we said at the beginning, it's the fundamentals and it's the things that drew me into debate and that I learned from debate that I really found valuable. Like the high-tech coaching and the A-level strategies are super, super fun, but the value of the activity, right, the way that it had benefited me, wasn't from the top echelons. It was from becoming a part of the community be to begin with. So I went from very high-tech college coaching to very high-tech high school coaching and worked at Westwood High School, which had a gigantic debate team with nationally competitive LDRs, PFers, and policy people, and extempers, and found that that was incredibly rewarding. It opened up my world quite a bit, and it was just so much work. Um, <laughs> public school teaching in the United States is not for the faint of heart, and if you don't know what you're getting into, then think twice before you jump into that, because that was 80-plus hours a week of work for anyone else who finds themselves like Nick at Westwood High School or a high school like it and they're getting burnt out from all the work, we're happy to bring you over here to China <laughs> and where you can be focused on speech and debate and not feel like you have no time for any other life. So the so last thing I want to ask before you have to go is since you came over to China four and a half, five years ago? Five and a half almost. Oh, five and a half almost. Quickly, what are the biggest changes you've seen in those five and a half years of speech and debate in China? It's much better organized now. The tournaments run on time, the procedures are much clearer, and people sort of know what's going on. Just in terms of size, it's much larger now. And the debaters just keep getting 
better and better and better. One of the things that we were all bemoaning five years ago when I came here was that it's so difficult to build up the community and to build the conventions because it seems strange to a lot of Chinese students to be able to deal with this. We have changed that now. The students know what to expect and we have established a culture of debate in China. And so we have that to fall back on. They are joining something rather than starting something. Hmm. Very wise words. So really sad we have to cut this off early. For those of you listening, we're in the we're actually in a classroom at the TOC. I thought this would be a free classroom, but a round's about to start. I want to thank you, Nick, for giving us your time and letting us hear more about you. Hopefully next time we'll have a chance to actually get into some of those fundamental debate skills we talked about. And for those of you listening, remember, please send in feedback to nsdachina at gmail.com. Let us know what kind of segments you want to hear, who you want us to interview, what questions you want me to ask. Remember, this is a show for you, so let us know what you want from that, nsdachina at gmail.com. And you can go to our WeChat or nsda.cn to find out about our tournaments, find out about our summer camps, winter camps, overseas trips lots of opportunities to do speech and debate. So until next time, jaiyo. Adios, y'all. <laughs>